0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Welcome out everyone and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Mark Longbottom, who's the CEO of Heart Kids NZ, as well as the founder of Purposely Podcast. And in this interview, we talk a lot about his history and his time living in England, where he was really involved in the not for profit sector, as well as his decision to return to New Zealand and start his own podcast. It was great to be able to connect with somebody else who's doing a podcast here in New Zealand about purpose, and I encourage you to check it out. You can find it in podcasting apps or at the link in the show notes. And if you enjoy this interview, don't forget this is episode 249, so there's a lot of content in the back catalog and plenty of information at theseeds.nz. This week I had somebody reach out to me for some legal support, and they had found out about me through the podcast, so that was kind of fun. I said to them, it's kind of an odd thing, because I hit publish, and I know that there's hundreds of you out there who are listening to it, but I actually don't know all of your identities. So feel free to drop me an email if you feel like it, as I always like to learn more about other people and their journeys. Now let's get into this interview with Mark. Right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Mark Longbottom, who's the CEO of Heart Kids New Zealand and the host of Purposely podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, really good to join and connect, Stephen, and and meet in person, which is a treat. Yeah, we've had quite a few exchanges, haven't we, over the last few months? Um, I'm thinking because when you were starting your podcast, we had a few. Back and forth, yeah. And, and one of the things I'm looking forward to is talking about what you're doing in terms of podcasting, Great. Um, as a fellow podcaster. But I'm also curious to know um, more about your background and uh-huh. your history. So what we're going to do is jump in this time machine over here <laughs> and go back. And I'm keen to find out about what life was like for you when you were, say, four or five years old. Okay, sure. So I, despite my
1: English accent, I am a born and bred New Zealander. So from the North Shore in Auckland and. Um, yeah grew up in a, a loving family with uh, wonderful parents and uh two sisters i was the oldest child uh and yeah like a, new, a kind of what then was a new part of the north shore um parents were kind of mums at home dad was working um and just yeah had a pretty good childhood really yeah, yeah lots of sport was kind of a key theme uh, and just probably fighting
0: with my sisters was the rest and um so that childhood did was there much international connection at all or was it mainly just focused where you
1: were yeah it was actually pretty focused on where we were so um you know new zealand was the 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 main uh focus but i had this drive or passion to um immigrate or live in the uk Mm -hmm. and uh you know drive my parents mad because i tried to get them to immigrate quite a few times which um they refused which Mm -hmm. and it wasn't much um, immigration going on in that w- way. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview you know, with Mark. Coming if you, you did, New then UK you might want to check out some of the other country. interviews in the back uh, catalog. And so I, because that theme continued actually right through... Until next time. Um, you know, teen, right through teenage years. Hmm. So uh, what was sparking that then at such an early age? I think New Zealand was a was an island which um, didn't have much content, if modern-term content. So like a lot of TV was imported, a lot of cultural stuff was not ours Mm -hmm. and uh, I think things just excited me so I remember getting up back to that sport theme getting up in the early hours of the morning and you know watch the All Blacks play England at Twickenham more importantly for me was watching my favourite team Tottenham play in the FA Cup final and it's this gleaming Wembley Stadium with this bursting sunshine London it just felt, felt so exciting to me hmm. uh, and, and I guess New Zealand felt quite sleepy in comparison, not that I remember that being a massive negative but I just wanted this adventure I think is probably a, a key theme uh, and I just, res- just resonated. I mean silly things like I used to watch Coronation Street and enjoy it probably more than I should have done <laughs> and more than I would now but yeah a real, a real um, focus, I mean my grandparents her grandparents were Scottish you know Britain was definitely a, a, a kind of theme um, but I was desperate to finish school and go get out there.
0: Hmm. That's amazing to think that at such a young age that that was a calling of where you wanted to go. Because we're going to get into it, but you yeah. actually did that, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I did. And there's things like um, at school
1: uh, in the yearbook. If you can go back and look at Tackleton Grammar's yearbook, it would say, a "Dream is to play for Tottenham Hotspur. Reality will be go to move to London and buy a season ticket." And that's kind of how it rolled. Right. Um, but I'm I. I got really motivated um you know earned some money did a lot of uh weekend work pulled together some money and at 18 set off uh and headed over to the uk Mm -hmm. and that was a that was a harsh reality so we're talking late 80s when it was an economic recession and um uk was a tough place Mm -hmm. and you know you turn you rocked up in the uk and the best you could hope for would be bar work uh and i hadn't yet gone to university so that kind of dawned, but yeah, it was uh, a love for the UK which endures to this day, Stephen. I you know, uh-huh. still
0: still love both New Zealand and the UK, hmm. um, in equal measure. And what did your parents think of that? You know, like it sounds like you were very focused and driven from a young age that this is where you wanted to go. So I guess it makes sense when you're eighteen that you're out of there you're you're on your way. But Mm. yeah, what was their reaction? I think that they were pretty supportive of anything we did actually. So it wasn't, it wasn't an issue.
1: Mm. Uh, And they, they kind of, yeah, live with that. I think they paid sort of lip service to it basically (laughs) (laughs) knowing all too well that my dad was like focused on the weather and boats and, and um, we had different interests, but uh, yeah, they just ran, ran with it thinking, I think one of the really interesting things is uh, New Zealand's parents, um, or New Zealanders, grow up with this sort of, uh, we're a long way away, we're a small line at the bottom of the country. Um, at one, at some stage, there's this sort of OE narrative. That one stage, our children will you know do, go to university maybe and they'll head overseas and we might lose them for a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's quite unique, that level of empathy for that or understanding of that or just where... You know, I've noticed when you, you know, if you're in America or Britain, you don't anticipate that you'll lose a child Mm. to another part of the world. Mm. So, yeah. So I think they were
0: always, always been supportive hugely. Mm. I guess it's partly the awareness that New Zealand is an island very, very far (laughs) away from the rest of the world. So, yeah, yeah, they're probably, you're probably right. There is that openness to it. Just, well, they'll go, but they'll come back
1: yeah and i didn't i kind of did come back a few times but it sort of stayed you know probably longer than my mum would really anticipate or wanted to or with my dad yeah uh but yeah i yeah it's it's you you go over and and you have this vision and dream uh, and then the reality dawns you know life um that's certainly back in that late 80s uh yeah it was it's pretty harsh in the sort of 90s the new labor years that evolved into something quite different with more opportunity for a young kiwi person arriving
0: mm. but yeah and you mentioned your grandparents had come from scotland was that an attraction to go there or did you end up in london or i happened? did
1: i did three years in, in edinburgh uh grand, grandfather was um he was uh, part of a mining family who came to live in huntley uh he was age eight and I definitely wanted to go and see where he was from. So he wasn't in Edinburgh, he was in a place called Galston, which is on the, near Kilmarnock on the western side uh, near Glasgow. Mm. Um, so he re- went out there and you know, went to his old school. Even met, we had this uh, hilarious moment where he um, got to his old village, uh, went to a pub, and the person came out from behind the bar and said, Oh, yeah, I know your grandfather's nephew. Huh. I could call him now. You wait there. Left me in the pub with my mum, waiting there for uh, him to come back, and he appears out of nowhere. This nephew, all these, you know, many, 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 many years later. Wow! So that that was definitely part of it. Um, but I I graduated s- south of uh, to England to because just the weather, right? Mm. You know, it's kind of harsh growing up in New Zealand when you've got a lot of sunshine. Mm. Of lovely weather and then getting your head around grey and cold. Mm. So,
0: south is definitely a preference from that perspective, just from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah, and I guess particularly compared to Auckland, which has a bit more humidity and a bit more heat anyway, yeah. like compared to Invercargill or you yeah. Know, Dunedin. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we went to Edinburgh once to look at it as a potential destination to live. Um, And we ended up settling in London for three years. But the reason was basically the sun was going down at like 2.30 or 3 o'clock. And we thought, wow, that's a long night, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) they were
1: were long nights. And then, you know, in Edinburgh, you'd have very long days Mm. or, you know, very short nights Mm. at at the other time of the the month. But, um, yeah, weather's not the be on and end for me. I'm You know, kind Mm. of, but it, it played a part
0: yeah so Mm. what happened next you're 18 years old and you're so yeah so 18 it's it's, um
1: head finish finish up at school um head over to the uk and then the dawning reality of i don't have an education beyond school i don't necessarily have any school skills i need um i could do some bar work which i loved and if bar work paid more than it does i'd happily be a barman (laughs) um probably set off on that course but I realised around about 21, 22, that I wanted to, to go to university. I wanted an education. So I headed back to Auckland uh, and did a sociology degree, mm. uh, which started life actually as a psychology degree. So it was kind of micro, but it ended up with a macro focus. Um, and I think that just made more sense to me, that society and society's kind of disciplines, norms, hegemony, whatever, it has a lot to do with our behavior and it mm. kind of made a lot of sense I ended up doing a sociology degree at Auckland University mm. and and loved doing that it wasn't the kind of probably wasn't the sort of hedonistic type of degree like if I was back home staying like, living with my parents keep costs down it was just the beginning of um, student debt so trying to keep a lid on that mm-hmm. uh, but but for other reasons enjoyed you know and I did you know like I was doing I did women's studies uh, Maori studies Um, sociology of the media Mm. like the really good content uh,
0: and it helped shape my thinking later on in life Mm. and doing that coming back having been away for a couple of years did you not think oh maybe I do want to stay in Auckland or you know it sounds like you went back to the UK I'm just curious yeah I I, yeah I've been sort of rebounding
1: back and forth Um, I think when it did my degree and then realized that um, and and took a first job, but then realized that, that kind of love for the UK or that excitement, that adventure I definitely wanted to do. Mm. And I hadn't done some of the things I wanted to do that were, it were sort of, you know, like grab a camper van and drive around or head around, do all of Europe, I hadn't done Europe yet. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was sort of a need for adventure and, and to go back and, and live that sort of life. So
0: mm. Mm. yeah. So what happened next?
1: What happened next? So, Finished, finished up my degree. Uh, well, actually, I um, f- uh, fell in love with a um, British woman, mm-hmm. uh, who, who I'm not with now, but uh, so that was one of the draw cards. She was from Edinburgh. So that's probably why I ended up in Edinburgh. Uh, just had friends turning up in um, London, uh, when I ended up in London, and they were all willing, keen to travel um didn't quite go to script though so when we when we all turned up in london together this is all school friends from tachypina um they'd run out of money so they'd done sort of canada america snowboarding uh and i was like waiting for them they turned up without any cash so i said you know don't you know what i'm just going to do this myself which actually was a great way of doing it so i did sort of classic uh oe type experiences um, most of western europe Mm-hmm. Um, and just tried to do as a lot of travel, as much travel as possible, mm-hmm. all along um, trying to carve out a career in the kind of for-purpose sector. So I'd had this real drive, having done the sociology degree, that was all part of this master plan to do something more purposeful with my life. I'd done some salesy things and some sort of enterprise stuff and sold stuff, and I wanted to carve out that sort of career and the UK seemed to make sense for that reason. Mm. Um, so one of my early jobs in the UK was focused on HIV with the Terence Higgins Trust, uh, which is fascinating. So I was there, there for four years. Um, Terence Higgins is the first man, known man to die of HIV in, in England. Mm. Uh, and it was a trust set up by his f- friends and family so that no one else would have the experience that he had, which mm. is around you know um, being ostracised, being labelled, uh, and not having information support so that was that sort of career that i was wanting to carve out it made a lot of sense to be in the uk because it's mm-hmm. a big sector there yeah you know like as it's well.
0: interesting to me as well though because we're talking is this mid-1990s by now is yeah so exactly yeah 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 because yeah, even you know the terminology of the for-purpose area and things like it it's relatively recent so it sounds like you were quite certain even back then that that's what you wanted. yeah it wasn't to you're
1: right it wasn't called that it wasn't Stephen back yeah. then. um I knew that I wanted my career to be more than just about profit and and sales and you know capitalism and I wanted my career um no halo shining on my head at all but I knew I wanted to be consistent and to make people's lives different through what I did daily Mm. That was a kind of, and that and that came through. I when I left university, I'd done an early job at the Auckland City Mission, um, which was fascinating. So I'd worked at Herne Bay House, which is a residential centre for um, people with HIV and AIDS, uh, and uh, so end of life care. So you had people whose lives were coming to an end, and we were caring for them, mm-hmm. um, which is a great experience. On reflection. I think I was very young for that experience. Mm. Not everyone who went into Herne Bay House died, but people did lose their lives. Um, mm. A lot of incredible people stayed at that place. It was a very loving and nurturing place. It was a nondescript house in the suburbs of Herne Bay. Mm. Uh, but that kind of got me fired up around being so close to the impact that you could make to people's lives. Um, and even though I didn't think I had those skills or I didn't have an interest in being there, delivering the therapy or delivering the counseling or doing that frontline stuff. I knew that I wanted to work in that sector. Um, I think for me, the HIV AIDS theme was strong for me because I felt like it was just, these these people had to deal with not only as horrendous illness, which often meant certain death, but they had to put up with all the societal baggage, Mm -hmm. you know, and and a lot of hate and anger. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of, um, I ended up raising money for Terrence Higgins Trust, but, you know where it's difficult to go into a corporate sector or a building or a, you know business and say give some give money for hiv and i like that challenge um mm. uh, it was like looking
0: out for the small guy yeah so, so would you trace it back to that home bay house experience do you think that was the catalyst that set you on that path? i think it definitely helped um seeing the
1: impact you could have on and like life can turn around to all of us, like, you know, stuff can happen, right? Mm. Uh, and we just never know when we might need a charity or a nonprofit, mm. um, and just to see the difference that you could make. So I think it helped reinforce. I'd already had a strong desire to get into this world, mm. um, and
0: that helped. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So talk us through some of your working experiences in the UK. I, I don't think we'll dwell on every possible one yeah. because I'm really keen to find out what you do today and also the decision to come back to New Zealand. Because mm. it sounds like UK had been a love affair from childhood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and now you've chosen, was it last year, to move back to, move to back. New Zealand. So yeah. I'm really keen to understand that as well. Yeah, why we've done
1: that. Um, yeah, so various jobs. The the sort of dominant job, I guess, was via the Princess Trust, which is focused on children and young people. But the, the dominant role in that was uh, 10 years as uh, um, cha- head of a charitable foundation for a large wealth management firm. So they, for their offering is supporting people with their wealth, so helping them through their wealth. And uh, I'd been in the charity sector all along and here I am in this corporate running their charitable foundation with a relatively small team, but a really committed community. And it was absolutely brilliant, Mm -hmm. fantastic. Because it was kind of one foot in the charity sector, as in the UK, they say third sector, and another foot in the corporate sector. Mm -hmm. And I like the sort of, hustle and bustle of it straight talking strategy was written on half a page no nonsense uh huge resources which is always nice mm-hmm. so i i a decade of doing that uh, in the uk mm-hmm. uh and i it was yeah absolutely heady times um and leaving that was difficult but i think i was one of these kiwis who was always quite focused on home like I'd come back every two years for holiday if I could mm-hmm. uh, and bring my children back and New Zealand was a strong theme in our house you know my kids support the all blacks even though they're, they were British until mm-hmm. recently uh very English and uh New Zealand was always a possibility the the the, the sort of reason we came back I think was because we end up having a fourth child quite late so we had a uh we got three kids and the last one Arlo uh my wife got pregnant with him. And we needed to reevaluate our lives. So we needed to start thinking differently about how we live. So I had a long commute. She was running her own for purpose organization. And we needed to rethink what we were doing. And then we looked on those holidays with I've got a big family back here, lots of cousins that they could access. Mm. So from a lifestyle and just it's time for a new adventure. Mm -hmm. So we were living in Bristol, southwest of england which has a lot of resources had a lot of amazing things but actually my wife who's english was very keen for us to try this adventure and come back Mm. and it was just as we came back at fortuitously just before the global pandemic Mm. so it feels like we've somewhat swerved things exactly (laughs) Uh,
0: and and after initially
1: it being challenging you know loving being back Mm. uh, definitely
0: yeah oh that's really great yeah it's interesting to me to hear people's stories and and how they get involved in the third sector, as they call it in the UK, you know, and, and just what it is that drives people to do that. You mentioned the Prince's Trust. Obviously, recently on Netflix, there's the crown and things. Um, yeah. What, what was it like being in an environment where, you know, you're dealing with royalty? And yeah, and, yeah curious can about that. Can we were. Well,
1: and, and um, you know, every year, Prince the prince would come to us and talk to us at our staff meeting, effectively. Mm. Uh, we'd deal with Clarence House. We'd have all those interactions To as a Kiwi you know, born in Glenfield on the North shore in Auckland. It was like very exciting, mm. you know, cause we were at all these incredible black tie dinners. Um, we had those sort of Princess Trust really engaged celebrity ambassadors, as you, as you could imagine. Mm. So that was superb. And there were, you know, they were, they were conservative. There were high stakes. Uh, there were certain things like controls that, you know, don't exist in other organizations. Absolutely. Mm. But, um, If anyone thinks that HRH doesn't care, uh, could be, or isn't grounded in reality or doesn't care about ethnicity, doesn't care about disadvantage, you know, like if you look at all of um, HRH's, uh, Prince Charles's sort of charities, he's got five or six of them doing incredible things, been doing them for decades Mm. with huge social good, Mm. you know, absolutely incredible. So with the Princess Trust, it was all about picking up young people and trying to, Get them to be the best they could be mm. and this is right across right into the far reaches of Wales Scotland really deprived parts of Britain sprinkling the sort of stardust that they would grab hold of and they would use that as a vehicle to making their lives better
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it was a great organization to be part of and quite collaborative and partnership focused mm. as well but with the sort of brand that was really strong I mean I remember going to a where this 12-week team project that was called and they have a presentation at the end, and you'd have people, you know, in tears, saying that their life was going nowhere until they'd done this twelve-week team project, and the sort of validation from the prince had given them something to to kind of turn their lives around, mm. and their parents were proud they'd never been proud before. So, the royals might be getting a bit of a rough time of it at the moment, but actually, what going what's going on now? What the narrative in the last few weeks? is ignoring the fact that they've done incredible work over decades Mm. and quite innovative stuff as well. It's not, you know, I said it's conservative in one way, but it wasn't conservative in other ways.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting because obviously most of us don't have the chance to meet someone like that or have them come and present. And, Mm. yeah, I think there's often, uh, I guess... Yeah, social media and things. You, you, you never really get to know the person yeah. as such. It's yeah. more of the image. So you come back to New Zealand. Um, tell us a little bit about your role now, and then I'd love to find out about the podcast that you started. As yeah, well.
1: great. So role now is chief executive of Heart Kids New Zealand. So it's a support charity, effectively. Started 40 years ago, focused on people who have congenital heart defects. So incredibly, these 12 children a week still diagnosed with CHD, mm. these forty different types of congenital heart defects, that was the same when it was started um, forty years ago. So that the actual demand for our services hasn't changed. Um, but we're you, know, we're you and I are sitting in Christchurch today. We've got teams across New Zealand delivering support, information, and then connecting people who are on the same journey, lived experience. In fact, I've just today I've been to one of our murmurs groups. A, uh, a couple in Christchurch. Um, you know, life's run over by this diagnosis. Mm. Uh, and then we do a lot of stuff around supporting them and making their lives better. And then connecting that back up to Starship, mm. the, the you know, the big paediatric hospital. Mm. So absolutely loving it. And it feels, it's a real strong connection for me because my cousin's a heart kid. Um, cousin Kylie was born in the 70s, just when a lot of surgical practices had improved. Mm-hmm. Prior to that in the 60s, you typically didn't make it. Uh, And I grew up with her, and a strong sense of her life was different because of the surgery she'd had and the effects that had on her. Mm -hmm. But a smart woman who flourished and has has a career, Mm -hmm. and so for me, connecting my professional expertise, if I have some, uh, but with my motivation to support a Kylie type people uh, and their understanding of what she was. Going through and what her family were going through,
0: so it feels like the right role for me. Right, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a real um, circle of life thing, right? Where you you had the experience of a cousin like that, mm. and are those um, congenital heart conditions and things? When when do they typically picked up? Is it something that's obvious right away, or is it something that you know weeks in, or months in, or years in? Yeah. gets diagnosed. Good question. No straight answer for that. So some of it's
1: um, prenatal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the couple I was talking to today, they found out after birth, mm. uh, comes as a real shock, just in the, you know, a few days after or w- or weeks after, um, there might be a murmur picked up, a diagnosis, and then their world changes. There's this great analogy that um, we draw on for one of our resources, which is, you know, you bought a ticket to fly to Italy, but you ended up in Amsterdam.
0: Mm.
1: It's not where you were hoping to go or thought you would be, but actually, it's still wondrous you still love that child you meet all these incredible people maybe because of your connection to a new world mm. and a new communities mm. and um yeah it's there isn't one straight line as i said there's you know 40 plus different types of congenital mm. defects mm. um so you might try and so some people finding their exact match or the person who's been through the same lived experience that might be overseas mm. uh but but yeah it's it's a phenomenal cause, um, and uh, we're very proud of what we do
0: mm, That's great. well, in the show notes, as you know, we can put links to things so people can find out more. so wonderful, this, this may spark somebody to want to know more, so yeah. They'll be able to find and and go and and see what's going on because it is it mainly regionally focused or yeah we've got a christchurch exactly we've got a um you know right across the country actually
1: Mm. in all parts of new zealand there's a there's a group of people um we've got a family support worker who's a professional Mm. uh, and then they're supported by volunteers as well right across the country so yeah we anywhere in new zealand we could we could support access help you Mm.
0: Yeah, that's great. So you get back to New Zealand, and was it around the pandemic shutdown time? Is yeah, right? so interesting, because we're on the plane
1: on the way back, and there was a guy who was sitting next to my wife. We were separated. The kids were somewhere else as well. It was great. <laughs> uh, a few people wearing masks. He was very masked up, and he had gloves on, and he had a wife who was pregnant and was also a medic. And it was interesting when you reflect back now, anyone of those people who had a scientific mind... A medical mind, we're almost ahead of this. And he was talking about not, not thinking it was a big deal. We thinking, this is never going to catch on, this mask-wearing malarkey. Um, <laughs> we get back and I'm still working for my UK company at this point. So they'd very kindly given me some time. I remember going to see them actually and say, look, I'm, you know, we're going to live in New Zealand. I'd love to stay working for you guys if that's all possible. They were like, well, you've been with us a long time. We're happy with that. But we're not sure this virtual working thing will catch on. Mm. the whole company's virtual now. You know, the mm. UK has been going through a really tough time. Mm-hmm. So I was a sort of original uh, ground zero <laughs> virtual worker, got yep. back to New Zealand, and then was starting to wind up with them. We had a, a seven-week lockdown. Um, the governments go hard, go strong, and we were, we were in too bad a shape. We're in a relatively small flat in Devonport, which is a lovely place to be, and I think everyone felt pretty energised by we could do this, you know. we could probably get rid of this and live relatively normally. So I think we're all on the same page, weren't we? Mm-hmm. Um, I was concerned from a, you know, obviously opportunity perspective, so just, the world, I think the whole world was, uh, but I was also reflecting on what I love doing and I found myself walking around Devonport listening to loads of podcasts and I'd already been doing that. And I also reflect on the fact that I had so many amazing conversations with people. I used to go to London for work and I'd put all my meetings together over five or six hours back-to-back with charity leaders, founders, professionals. We'd meet at Flat White Cafe in Soho, uh, which is a Kiwi cafe, very narrow, quite noisy. has a sandwich board at the front that often says things like, slogans like, yeah, nah, which no else in London would know what that blinking thing meant, but it Mm. meant a lot to me. So I'd meet these people, would have these awesome conversations often i'd come back really energized and so i came up with this idea that i was going to start this podcast which effectively would just reconnect my old world in the uk with and all those stories that i'd picked up and i'd bring that into the sort of audio world online and i just went on a bit of a learning journey and Mm -hmm. um there's this you were an inspiration so you've been doing this a long time with Mm -hmm. seeds Mm -hmm. so i picked up on seeds and i just kind of tried to learn some, you know the technical side of it, mm-hmm. um and it was interesting
0: making that move. Yeah, because mm. I think you came to a session that I ran for a bunch of people on Zoom during the lockdown. I think that one was, and because I've done a number of them over the years now, and I remember that you you joined in and you were starting and yeah, just getting started. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure John Morrow as well had connected us. Yeah, at JB Ware. I think he had sent an email saying, "Oh, you guys need to have a chat." So, yeah, yeah. I've done this. Previous
1: to that, when I was, um, I'd kind of had a passion for choreographing content mm-hmm. for our sector. And then through, through that, people learn, mm-hmm. get inspired, probably probably the most interesting thing. And so I, yeah, I was really trying to draw on your experience, particularly as we, my um, podcast is called in Podcast, and it focuses on people who are trying to make the world a better place. Uh, it's got a. You said to me actually when we first talked. You said don't make it too narrow, Mark, mm. because actually you want wider, broader conversations. So it started off as just for founders of charities who are doing that kind of founder origin story, mm-hmm. and it's broadened to people who are just intent on making the world a better place. And you know, I, I kind of. My wife talks about it as my newest obsession, like a mm-hmm. suddenly watching less sport. I don't watch TV anymore. <laughs> this is an evening thing. Right. But I, I have these great conversations with these wonderful people who are all intent on making the world a better place. And I'm not trying to be, you know, too, um, you know, that sort of romantic about it all, but they genuinely are trying to do that. And I'd love mm-hmm. to showcase their stories and connect so more and more people can have that motivation. Yeah. You know? yeah
0: oh that's great well it's wonderful to have you on the show because anybody who's gone and learned something from seeds and that's kind of a cool link for me i learned loads from you know, of that day yeah absolutely great. <laughs> loads I, I
1: broke some of your rules and regret them to this day like you know um things like uh batching um you know effort so recording right. and or even just um but uh, one thing i've found is i'm incredibly um it's enduring like i'm it's one episode a week mm. uh, and i've kept going with it so obviously And I've learned along the way. I've got, hopefully got to become a better interviewer.
0: Mm. Well, you get in a rhythm, don't you? And it it just happens. And yeah, that's really great. I I think it's, I think stories, the reason I do the podcast is I think stories is how we learn from each other. And I think I said this when we had the session is, you know, a couple hundred years ago, most people couldn't read or write. The way we communicated was our voices, telling stories, you know, sitting around the fire, all of those things. Mm. And so in a way, podcasting is going back to the more primitive way of communicating rather than it being written on this 10 pages, you know, here's my life story, to actually hear somebody, hear them talk about it. It's just so much more powerful, I think. I agree. I like the informal nature of it. So I think that's like my preference for going back to
1: those cafes, those Mm -hmm. cafe conversations. And you, the origins of things really intrigue me as well, Mm -hmm. like why something becomes relevant
0: or why you do what you do yeah Uh, and and there's so many good stories behind lots of people Mm. and that in a way the efficiency is important too because like I think you emailed and said I'm in Christchurch let's catch up for a coffee and I said well let's just do a podcast because if you're here like you can spend 45 minutes with somebody and it's a good conversation but if you're a podcaster, well, why, let's just turn on <laughs> the thing let's, and just record and it. Now we, yeah, let's yeah. record it and yeah. you know and share it so other people can learn and you know maybe be encouraged or inspired yeah. to try something. Doing hundred you know, percent, doing something just different. a super personal um,
1: kind of like digested content as well. Like it feels for you listening, like it's you're included. You're almost the third person in the conversation not if it is an interview style podcast. Yeah, um, but hopefully it's sparking some people. I think with the um, You know, what's happened in the world, people are definitely keen to make their lives worthwhile and more so and focused on Mm. what they do every day, making a difference.
0: Uh, And if this could just do a small part of that, then great. Mm. Yeah, I find it's satisfying when I go to an event and someone will come up to me and say, you know, I heard you ask a question or something and I recognize your voice because of the podcast. (laughs) And it's like, I've never met this person, but they've heard me talking potentially for dozens of hours to people yeah and zoomed feedback that people are enjoying it so i'm yeah. sure you'll find the same thing like, yeah uh, you know. that you because you actually the process is actually not there's a lot of the
1: feedback that you don't get eh? mm. uh, but when you do get it it's crucial yeah um i got my daughter features at the very end of the podcast at the moment and uh it was an interesting way to ask people to subscribe and leave a review. But she's gone to sleep at night when I've like tonight I'm away down in Christchurch. She's so I, I when she listened, she's quite good. She listened mm. right to the end. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and I like it's it's quite primitive, and, and you don't need much in the way of resources to do it. Mm.
0: Well, here's a call out to people who are doing podcasting in New Zealand. Network. I think people, particularly those focused on purpose. You know, originally my one I was going to call it um, like talking purpose. You know, it was going to be over us as well, mm. and but I ended up with seeds because it kind of was more that umbrella to cover all types of things. But yeah, my show is definitely about purpose, so it, it matches yours yeah, in many absolutely. ways. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, you're well out in front, but I um I before the set pride in that. It's interesting that the experience of being on someone else's podcast. So if you're on in that interview style podcast. You get into sort of a comfort zone of
0: being the interviewer yeah and then being interviewed uh suddenly changes the dynamic yeah, yeah. i got interviewed by ian harvey a couple of months ago now just before christmas and yeah it was a, a case of just relaxing into it and letting the person ask you the questions rather than being the one thinking because as you know you're always thinking okay what's my next question going to be based on what they're saying yeah it, it's but i, really, quite a I it's thing. a diff- completely different experience yeah. and i the
1: other day i did one in um I wasn't calm, like I hadn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't kind of settled. And just the opening couple of questions. But the, the really good thing is, Stephen, you got edit. Mm. <laughs> I just edited that one out. Right, right. He still got his response, but it just didn't mean my. And I, I've also picked up on the fact that if you're doing interviews, try and get the gist of it as short a question as possible sometimes. Mm. You know, like, um, but it's, it's, it's supposed to be fun. So. Yeah, the
0: more you put into the question, the more potential there is for it to go off in ways that you didn't expect. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) So keeping it short. Well, what we'll do is put in the show notes, a link to your podcast as well. And um, yeah, you're free to use this audio. If you see that it would be helpful for your podcast Right. and, you. you know, we can all support each other, collaborate, partnered together um, but yeah thanks so much for coming on the show I loved hearing about your life story particularly that focus you had on the UK from a young age that you knew this is where you wanted to go mm. and that's where you went yeah and then also you knew you wanted to get into the for-purpose sector and that's what you did and I think that's quite a nice message for us to hear as listeners that you can be purposeful about what you're doing with your life and actually take actions to get there. So, yeah, um, yeah we'll put some links in the, in the show notes, but thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, and Stephen, massive thank you for doing this, but
1: also for being a mentor and, um, you know, shine the light because, you know, your podcast has been enduring. Uh, Seeds has been listened, as you said, by, you know, thousands of people, uh, and it's played a really important part in our sector. Um, so, you know, good, good um, light to, to
0: follow. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Mark. If you did, then you might want to check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog because there's almost 250 now. Until next time.